Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb, host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. And today we have a very, very special guest today, uh, Dr. Jessica Steen. Dr. Jessica Steen is an expert on vascular disease and the eye. A big part of the film is that the eye is a biomarker for systemic disease. So nothing like going to the expert, a, a professor, a teacher of doctors, on eye disease. Dr. Steen is an assistant professor at Nova Southeastern University College of Optometry. Uh, she's an attending optometric physician. She's a graduate of University of Waterloo School of, of Optometry and Visual Science. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry, and she's an expert in retinal disease, glaucoma, vascular disease, emergency room, I medicine. So Jessica, thank you for coming and thank you for stopping by and being interviewed by us today. My pleasure, Carrie. Always good to see you. Always good to chat with you. Well, thank you. So the first question I have for you, explain why the eye is such a good biomarker for systemic disease. Well, the interesting thing about the eye as far as being a biomarker for systemic disease is that it's not just made up of one type of tissue. So there's epithelial or skin type cells of the eyelid. There's certainly blood vessels inside the eye. And then there's neurological type tissue or brain type tissue that makes up the optic nerve, makes up the retina, and then muscular tissue that surrounds the eye as well. So the other thing that we can do as optometrists and we do do as optometrists is we've got the ability to examine the inside of the eye, the outside of the eye without using invasive type procedures. So we can see, physically see what's going on on an integral level inside the eye tissue that can allow us to see some of these early signs of systemic disease whether they may have been diagnosed or they have not yet been diagnosed. Well, the eye is really very, very complicated. And the blood vessels in the eye, we could see them, but we can't see the ones in the heart, the kidney, the brain, the toes. Dr. Steen, how are they the same? How are they different? Well, the blood vessels throughout the body, of course, circulate the oxygenated blood through arterioles and the deoxygenated blood through veins or venules. Now, the thing about the uh, blood vessels inside the eye is that they're primarily these microscopic vessels. So they're not these large vessels that make up this, the circulatory system, the aorta, those large vessels of the heart that we think about. These are truly microscopic vessels that are more susceptible to very subtle changes in oxygen levels or changes in metabolism as well. So let's start from the front of the eye and go back. Let's talk about some systemic disease that could actually start with the lids or actually the tear film. So the eyelids, we really think about inflammatory conditions like rosacea. 
Now, rosacea is inflammation of, of very small vessels that can cause redness of the skin, including the skin around the eyelids, and can also change the type of, of lipid or type of oil that goes into the tear film. Now, the concern about disrupting that tear film or the oil that goes into the tear film is that it can cause the tears on the surface of the eye to evaporate more quickly which when you've got tears on the surface that are evaporating causes symptoms of dryness. So other systemic conditions, especially those that are inflammatory systemic disease like autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and closely associated Sjogren syndrome can cause very significant symptoms of, of dry eye for patients. We know that autoimmune disease is very, very common, especially, and it's more common in females. Let's talk about some of the symptoms that they may have from dry eye. Well, from dryness, light sensitivity can result. You can have burning and tearing and redness. You know, just the inability to be able to look at a screen for a period of time, the ability to do the things that we need to on a daily basis, whether that's working in uh, an inside office environment, you know, being in South Florida, having air conditioning on 12 months a year is something that causes an exacerbation or increase of these symptoms of dryness, the irritation, the scratchy feeling that we have of our eyes. Now, a lot of people that don't have autoimmune disease have dry eye. What's the difference? Well, you know, the severity is truly the difference. You know, many people have dry eyes and that can be related to contact lens use, that it's more common in females who are postmenopausal. You know, hormones play an important role in overall dryness as well. But for people who have autoimmune associated dry eye, it's truly inflammatory in nature. And these symptoms are much, much, much more severe and aggressive than the people who, like myself, are contact lens wearers and sometimes have little moments of, of dryness. So as we go a little bit deeper into the eye, the front surface of the eye, the cornea, what kind of systemic diseases could be associated with hurting the cornea? Well, autoimmune disease we do think about in dryness and, and significant dryness that we mentioned. Other infections can infect the cornea. So, you know, the one that we think a lot about and that we see frequently is an infection of herpes simplex. So typically we think about herpes simplex uh, affecting the front part of the eye or the cornea. It can cause direct infection of the corneal cells, which causes symptoms for the patient of redness, irritation, blurred vision. Herpes simplex can also infect kind of an inner layer or the middle layer of the cornea that causes a type of inflammation inside the eye. Now, when we talk about inflammation inside the eye, it's uh, really the term that we use for that is uveitis. Now, uveitis is a group of diseases, really about 30 different diseases that all cause the same inflammation or similar inflammation inside the eye. So one of the interesting challenges that we have as optometrists, especially who see patients in emergency settings, is to try to work through and figure out what the underlying cause of that patient's uveitis or inflammation inside the eyes can be. And you know that can be anything from herpes simplex to shingles or herpes zoster, varicella uh, zoster virus, to infectious causes like syphilis, to autoimmune disease, 
to systemic disease like a condition called sarcoidosis. So if, as an optometrist, if we do see uveitis, what is something that we would do to try to one, figure out what the cause is and number two, to treat it? Well, to try to figure out the cause, of course, a very careful clinical examination. Even though all of these conditions present with inflammation, they can have different kind of subtypes of inflammation, whether that is any accompanying signs. So we dilate the pupil, we look for signs of inflammation inside the back of the eye as well, which can lead us to maybe being more suspicious of a systemic or autoimmune cause of the inflammation. We also pay a very close attention to what our patients tell us. So what other symptoms might they have that are not related to their eye? Any joint pain, difficulty breathing or chest pain. So a careful medical knowledge and underlying medical background really can help us to work through to try to figure out this underlying cause. Now, from there, if there is suspicion of a systemic underlying cause of this inflammation, that's where we work closely with the patient's primary care provider or internist to work through their, their risk or their understanding of underlying systemic disease. Now, when we talk about treatment, the treatment really depends overall on the underlying cause. Now, inflammation is what we see. So typically these patients need a treatment of that inflammation, which is in the form of a steroid or anti-inflammatory type eye drop. But if we determine through laboratory work, through working with our patient's doctors, that there's underlying infection, of course that underlying infection also needs to be treated. For those labs that we may order for uveitis or the inflammation inside the eye, what kind of labs, what kind of specific tests might those blood tests be? Well, we always evaluate a patient's complete blood count. So looking at red blood cell count, white blood cell count, and prevalence of white and red blood cells that can be a sign of elevated uh, white blood cells or a sign of infection. We can also look for markers that depending on our underlying suspicion, can lead us towards a diagnosis of a condition, an infectious condition, for example, like syphilis or possibly Lyme disease. We also think about those underlying autoimmune or inflammatory causes. So there are some specific uh, pro-inflammatory markers that can be tested for. You know, we can think about sedimentation, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein sometimes is useful, and also looking at a group of conditions that if a patient has a positive genetic marker, we think specifically of these what are called HLA B27 genes, can increase a patient's likelihood for the development of uveitis as well as underlying autoimmune disease. You mentioned Lyme disease. What does Lyme look like inside the eye? So inside the eye, Lyme disease can take a number of forms. We think most commonly about inflammation. So a specific type of inflammation or uveitis inside the eye that can impact the retina as well as the optic nerve. You know, the other things that we think about when we talk about optic nerve disease, that's what connects the eye to the brain. Lyme disease is a systemic infection, so it's not only an infection inside the eye, it can get inside of brain tissue, 
causing neurological changes for a patient. And because of those neurological changes, we can see damage in specific cases to the optic nerve that can be detected through our clinical exam by observing the optic nerve and doing other testing, like a visual field or, or side vision test, which really looks at the health of the optic nerve as well. If it affects the optic nerve or other parts of the eyes, what symptoms may a patient have? You know, typically we think about blurred vision. Blurred vision can be related to changes in the retina, can be related to changes in the optic nerve. Patients might have headache, or just generally with Lyme disease, we think about fatigue and chronic tiredness. But when we're talking about eye symptoms related to Lyme, again, when we think about inflammation, patients can have redness of the eye, they can have a dull kind of achy pain that happens, they can be really light sensitive, more so than usual with inflammation inside the eye. Before you mention herpes, and herpes in the eye compared to general herpes, can you make a differentiation or is it the same? You know, it is typically a different virus. When we talk about herpes inside the eye, we talk about herpes simplex virus type one. And that's a very common infection that the majority of adults in the world have and have been exposed to. What happens when you develop herpes simplex virus inside the eye is that that inactive virus becomes activated again. And often that time happens during periods of stress. So if there is mild immune suppression, maybe you've got a cold at the same time, maybe you've been overworked and you're more tired than usual, there are certain exposure, there's been the discussion of exposure to wind and sun that can increase the likelihood of reactivation of that herpes simplex virus inside the eye. We often hear, the public hears, that there's no treatment for viruses, but in the case of herpes simplex or herpes zoster shingles, there is a treatment, if you could talk about that. Sure, you know, it's really important for anyone who has a red, uncomfortable eye that their vision may be affected, that they are evaluated by an eye doctor, because not only is there a treatment, but if these conditions are left untreated, they can cause permanent vision loss. So when we're talking about herpes simplex virus specifically, there are two, or there are generally different treatments related to the type of infection or where that infection is inside the eye. Now, antiviral agents are prescribed, either an oral medication, which is very effective even for this eye type of uh, virus infection, as well as there's the possibility that there are topical um, antiviral agents for the eye. If there is significant inflammation at the same time in a specific layer of the eye, uh, steroid medication, topical steroid medication may be prescribed by your doctor. And when we talk about uh, herpes zoster and shingles in and around the eye, again, antiviral medications are prescribed very early on. The concern about shingles is not just the active infection, but what can happen after the infection. So we worry a lot about the development of something called post-herpetic neuralgia. So after the infection is resolved, there's the chronic nerve pain that is left behind after this type of shingles infection that can be very challenging for patients to deal with and very difficult to treat as well. So typically, uh, oral antiviral medications are prescribed for people who have shingles around or in the eye within ideally 72 hours of the first type of sign of that shingles virus. 
often with herpes zoster shingles in the eye, there's also inflammation that results. And these patients also need topical anti-inflammatory medications. Before somebody gets herpes zoster, we'll, we'll talk about shingles now for a mm -hmm. second. Sometimes they get a prodrome, like a warning sign that they're gonna get it. What is that and how, what do you guys do to treat that? So this is something that for people to be really aware of that, you know, typically we think about shingles as that blister type rash that occurs, but you're exactly right. People often get kind of a warning sign that they feel sometimes along where this, where this nerve distribution, when we think around the eye, what happens is that the virus lives dormant inside the nerve system and has a typical place that it likes to live, which is called the trigeminal ganglion. Now the nerve in this location supplies the forehead and the eye, which is why sometimes when you see people with a rash on their forehead due to shingles, they often have eye involvement as well. But this prodrome or this warning sign can oft is often described as kind of a prickling sensation or almost like uh, fireworks in the skin, just a, a heat or it's not uh, a heat that's not accompanied by redness or true irritation, but something that just feels a little bit off in the skin. And if that's something that you feel, this is something that very well may be the early, early sign of a herpes zoster or shingles infection, so should be examined. So if somebody gets that, what do the doctors do to jump into action? Typically, this is where we would jump in and prescribe an oral antiviral medication as soon as possible, again, to prevent or to try to reduce the risk of this development of post-herpetic neuralgia, as well as to treat the potential infection that's about to develop. Great. Now, as we move back through the eye, let's talk about the lens of the eye, how systemic disease could affect it. So the lens is a structure inside the eye that changes its focus to allow us to be able to see things clearly with glasses sometimes at distance and to change our focus to see clearly when we're young up close. That focusing ability changes a little bit around the age of 40 and that's where reading glasses can help to keep things clear, keep reading material clear because the lens starts to lose its focusing ability a little bit at that time. Now, what can happen to the lens, especially with systemic disease, is that that lens can become cloudy. When we talk about the clouding of the lens inside the eye, that's what's called a cataract. Now, everybody, if they're lucky to live long enough, will develop a cataract in their lifetime, but there are certain conditions that can cause that cataract to develop earlier on in life. You know, one of the most common conditions is diabetes mellitus that can impact and can cause cataract development much earlier on. So sometimes in patients 30s or 40s, there's, uh, there are a couple of genetic, rare genetic conditions that can cause early cataract. And you know, sometimes we also think about conditions that are treated with medications and that those medications themselves, while absolutely necessary for the treatment of their disease, can cause cataracts to develop more quickly. And that group of medications that can cause cataracts to develop more quickly uh, typically involve treatment with anti-inflammatory agents or steroid medications. Now, as we go further back into the retina uh, or the vitreous, what systemic diseases affect that part of the eye? 
So the vitreous is the area inside the eye that's really a fluid type of component. So this makes up a large part of the inside of the eye. And typically that substance is fairly clear. You know, sometimes when we see floaters, uh, that can be a sign of just a little bit of normal or expected breakdown of that vitreous fluid that happens. But other significant increase in floaters can happen because again of inflammation inside the eye. So just like that inflammation can affect the front part of the eye, it can also affect the inside of the eye, the vitreous as well as the retina. So the vitreous is an area where inflammation can be determined or observed. When we go into the retina, this is really where the eye has its high metabolic function that comes from. This is the tissue that allows us to be able to see. It transmits the electrical signals to the optic nerve, which connects to the brain, that allows us to process any sort of image that we see. So within the retina, we have nerve cells, and we have a very high supply of very fine blood vessels. So systemic disease that can be autoimmune disease, vascular conditions, uh, metabolic disorders, can all impact the way that this retina functions. Let's talk about diabetes. Talk about how diabetes could affect the eye, especially the retina, but any part of the eye. So what happens in diabetes is that we think about elevated blood glucose, and that elevated blood glucose can damage the very small cells that make up those tiny blood vessels. This can cause those blood vessels to break down and become leaky. Now, what those blood vessels leak is kind of a protein-like fluid, there can be uh, liquid that, uh, fluid that leaks out of the blood vessels, as well as lipid that leaks out of the blood vessels. This can cause swelling or edema inside the eye. And when it affects the central part of the retina, we call this macular edema, which can be seen in diabetic retinopathy. The other thing that happens to the tissue inside the eye with diabetes is that those, again, those very fine, small blood vessels become stressed for oxygen. This creates what we call an ischemic type of condition. Now, when blood vessels don't get the amount of oxygen that they need to supply the retina with oxygen so that it can function to allow us to see, what happens is that the body increases the production of specific growth factors that cause the development of new blood vessels to grow. Now, the challenge with this is that those new blood vessels that grow are not a good quality type of blood vessel. They leak, they're overall fairly sick new vessels. So they don't function overly well in providing new oxygen. They really cause more trouble to the inside of the eye than, than help, certainly. And when this happens, this new blood vessel formation happens in diabetes, we call this proliferative diabetic retinopathy. There is proliferation of new red blood vessels. Now what happens with those blood vessels is that they leak, they cause swelling in the eye, and in very late stages, they can pull on the inside of the retina, causing traction, and a specific type of retinal detachment can happen, which is something that certainly does require treatment, and that patients often do lose vision from, even with appropriate treatment. How important is it for a patient who has diabetes to get their eyes examined based on everything you've just said? You know, the recommendation from the American Diabetes Association, the American Academy of Optometry, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the American Optometric Association, really all of our national 
governing bodies that look out for the public as far as managing systemic disease and ocular complications of systemic disease agree very well on this, that for anyone diagnosed with diabetes type 2, the recommendation is to have an eye exam at the time of diagnosis. The reason why is that many people who are newly diagnosed with diabetes type 2 already have subtle changes inside the eye related to diabetic retinopathy that may or may not require treatment. Now, even if you're one of the lucky people who has diabetes type 2 without changes inside the eye, the recommendation is still an eye exam through a dilated pupil every single year. Now, depending on the amount or the level of diabetic retinopathy that you may have, that recommendation for, di uh, for dilated fundus exam can be less than once a year. Now, let's talk about the lens of the eye and how could diabetes affect the lens? So it can cause clouding of the lens, like a cataract formation, but also what can happen with elevated glucose levels, there can be an increase in what follows that elevated glucose? So water or a fluid can be absorbed at a higher rate by the lens. That causes swelling of the lens. Now, sometimes what people will, will notice and what can bring them in for their first eye exam are changes to their vision. One of the things we often ask about is their blood glucose. So with fluctuations, increases and decreases to blood glucose, that can cause changes in the swelling of the lens. Now, because light needs to pass through the lens to focus on the retina to allow us to see clearly, when you're changing the overall area and thickness of that lens that happens with swelling, patients can note blurred vision, they can have changes to their glasses prescription, and that's one of the signs that we, that we think about and one of the questions that we often ask patients who have or report this fluctuation in vision. We ask them about their blood glucose and their management with their physician. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Why did diabetics get cataracts about 10 years sooner than non-diabetics? Because of the disruption, so what happens in diabetes, it's not as simple as only looking at glucose. The changes in glucose impact changes uh, in any of the tissues, in all of the tissues throughout the body. But what happens in the lens is that it disrupts the natural metabolism of the lens. Even though we think about it as kind of just a, a clear uh, a clear structure inside the eye, it is still metabolically active and diabetes can disrupt its normal metabolic functions. And when that metabolic uh, dysfunction happens inside the lens, it causes this cloudiness. Let's talk about uh, hypertension. How does that affect the uh, retinal blood vessels? So just like the vessels throughout the body, those inside the eye are highly, highly uh, impacted by changes in blood pressure, which causes structural changes to those blood vessels as well. We think about arteriosclerosis. This is something that we can observe and actually examine inside the eye through a dilated pupil in a dilated fundus examination. So these structural changes that happen with chronically elevated blood pressure can increase someone's likelihood of having changes inside the eye, something that we call 
uh, a retinal vein occlusion occur, or other changes that impact, that can cause vision loss and require treatment. Sometimes eye doctors will see like a little tiny plaque between the blood vessels in the eye, but the patient has no symptoms. At, what, at that point, what needs to happen? Well, what we worry about, what that plaque really is, is a lipid or cholesterol type plaque that's broken off from somewhere further downstream in the system. So that plaque can clog up a very fine blood vessel. If that plaque clogs up an arterial and that were to happen in the brain, that's what we call a stroke. So we can have that same blockage of a blood vessel by one of those small plaques inside the eye. That's something called a retinal artery occlusion. And what happens is that it blocks off oxygen and blood flow from going any further uh, through that blood vessel, which causes a lack of oxygen in the area and tissue death. So that's something that happens in the brain as a stroke and in the eye as an artery occlusion. If we see that inside the eye, that is a true medical emergency. This is something that uh, is a stroke inside the eye. And this is something that that patient needs to be referred based on the newest guidelines uh, to a stroke ready center or a stroke center at an emergency department because their risk of secondary stroke is much higher than it was uh, before that first stroke. So they do require systemic treatment to try to reduce the risk of having a second stroke happen. Is TPA used in those cases? You know, every stroke center has their different type of protocol in how they manage uh, stroke patients. You know, as far as inside the eye, different factors play a role. You know, it's something that if this is something that happened very, very acutely, happened five minutes before the patient was in your office, and they've had the symptom of sudden vision loss, when we examine the patient, we determine they've had an artery occlusion, which is a stroke inside the eye. We refer that patient emergently to the emergency room with a stroke ready center as a stroke patient. Uh, you know, as far as the, uh, the treatment that may be undergone, sometimes can include that kind of clot buster or TPA agent. Let's continue with the retina. And unfortunately, as eye doctors, optometrists, we've all seen patients who've had cancer in the eye. If you mm -hmm. could speak to that a little bit. Well, you know, there are different things and different types of cancers that affect the eye. There can be a primary cancer of the tissue inside the eye, and most commonly that's called a choroidal melanoma. So it is a melanoma type of cancer, but it impacts a different blood vessel system called the choroid. And this is something that certainly does and can cause vision loss and is treated by retinal oncologists. And that type of tumor can metastasize to other locations in the body. Now, when we're looking inside the eye, the most common type of malignant lesion that we see is a metastasis from another location in the body. Sometimes that can be from a previous breast cancer or breast lesion, can be from GI tract lesions, can be from prostate cancer, can be from bone or liver cancer. So the most common cancer that we see inside the eye originated somewhere else in the body. Now, other blood-borne cancers, because of the very high blood supply to the inside of the eye, we can see types of lymphoma as well as leukemia that manifest inside the eye. So if we look at the optic nerve as you go even further back, 
what kind of systemic diseases can affect negatively the optic nerve? Well, the optic nerve is what really connects the eye to the brain. So it is a functional neurological type of tissue. So any type of condition that affects brain tissue can also impact the optic nerve. Now, we can think about that in the sense that it can be a space-occupying lesion, like a, a type of tumor. This can be a cancerous tumor, or it can be a benign tumor, but can still impact optic nerve tissue and can cause vision loss. We also think about demyelinating diseases, such as multiple sclerosis or neuromyelitis optica that can cause damage to the optic nerve. Uh, again, fine vascular conditions that affect those very fine blood vessels that impact the, the brain can also impact the optic nerve. How about things like uh, that, that could affect the, the muscles of the eye, like Hashimoto's, thyroid eye disease? Talk about that a little bit. So when we think about thyroid eye disease and its impact on the eyes, we typically focus our conversation to autoimmune thyroid eye disease. So not just related to elevated or decreased uh, thyroid hormone levels, but autoimmune disease that causes the production of antibodies that destruct or cause damage to the thyroid uh, organ. Now, what happens in thyroid eye disease, it can be a result of Hashimoto's thyroidosis, which is a decreased, uh, is a secondary hypothyroidism related to autoimmune disease, or Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disease that causes elevated levels of an elevated activity of that thyroid gland. Now, typically what happens first is that patients might have symptoms of dryness. This can start out very mild. Now, because the tissue of the thyroid gland, as well as the tissues around the eye are structurally similar, these antibodies that are produced in these conditions can also attack and impact the tissues around the eyes, including the muscles around the eyes. So patients can have double vision, that results, they can have dryness and kind of a, a proptosis or swelling of the eyelids. Now, what can also happen in much later stages is with swelling of the tissues inside the orbit or around the eye, that can cause compression of the optic nerve. There's so much swelling that the optic nerve doesn't have enough room that it requires to continue to transmit that uh, visual information between the eye and the brain and can cause structural damage and permanent vision loss to the optic nerve. And how about the muscles around the eye? So those muscles can swell and can cause, again, double vision, can cause uh, this, this appearance of proptosis or kind of a stare-like appearance of the eye that that swelling and, and stare-like appearance can cause further dryness as well. Talk about some other conditions that might affect the muscles, maybe myasthenia. Yeah, okay. So myasthenia gravis is another autoimmune type condition that disrupts the way that uh, we are that this neuron that moves and controls these muscles function. So it weakens the muscle, the muscular function over time. That can cause drooping of the eyelids, again, can cause double vision that typically patients will notice later in the day when they're more fatigued or tired after taking a break or a rest or a nap. Typically, their symptoms are improved, and myasthenia gravis is something that can affect just the eye muscles or can affect what's called systemic um, myasthenia gravis, can impact the way that the patient speaks, the way that you breathe, 
and does require systemic treatment in many cases. Alzheimer's is increasing. There's over 5 million people in the U.S. that have Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of there's a lot of new research that is showing that the eye doctor may be the earliest place to get diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Talk about how Alzheimer's affects the eye and what tests we could do to help with that diagnosis. So of course, with Alzheimer's, the goal is early diagnosis with the advent and with the understanding that early diagnosis with potentially early treatment or development of new treatments can impact and can improve a patient's quality of life long-term. So the goal for any condition is early diagnosis. The challenge with Alzheimer's is that symptoms of the condition don't manifest until fairly late in the disease course. So the question is, what can we do to try to detect this condition before a patient even has symptoms? So this goes back to the relationship between the optic nerve and the brain. So because the optic nerve is an extension of the brain, even when these very subtle changes that can be detected through invasive imaging strategies of the brain uh, in Alzheimer's disease, there can be downstream or ocular impacts that we typically don't see on clinical examination, but there has been some proposal that there are subtle vascular changes uh, that could be seen from a clinical exam we typically rely on something a little bit more uh, specific that allows us to determine the microscopic tissue that is even too small to see from a clinical exam. So what we can look at are these axons or the nerve fibers that extend from the brain that make up the optic nerve and some of the retinal tissue. And what can happen is that there can be very subtle thinning of this microscopic tissue that can be detectable on a technology that we call optical coherence tomography, or OCT. So OCT uses light. For a patient's perspective, uh, it's almost like a photograph, but instead of a bright flash of light, it uses different wavelengths of light to image the inside of the eye. And this OCT technology images these very fine, fine axons that can show very subtle thinning that can be reflective of changes due to Alzheimer's inside the eye. Another technology that we have that's very similar, it's an extension of this OCT, is something called OCT angiography. So it uses the same technology, but instead of just looking at the nerve type of tissue or the retinal tissue, it specifically maps the very fine microscopic blood vessels inside the eye. And one of the predisposing changes that has been really investigated for diabetes, as well as Alzheimer's disease, is to look at what subtle vascular changes can cause this neurologic change and, and progression of disease over time. So even in Alzheimer's disease that we think about as a neurodegenerative condition, there is a vascular component to this condition, and these very subtle microscopic vascular changes might pre- uh, impact the eye before we see these neurodegenerative type changes that are detectable with neuroimaging as well as with traditional OCT technology. These blood vessels in patients with Alzheimer's in the brain, they start to drop out and people start getting less blood vessels. We start to see something similar on the OCT. Of course, maybe it's nonspecific, but with your experience, what have you noticed with those blood vessels that are dropping out along the foveal vasculars or the center of the, of the retina? 
on OCT right. and geography. That's exactly with OCT and geography. So we see the loss of these very fine blood vessels that we can't detect clinically. So anytime we have loss of these very small blood vessels, that we know that there is less oxygen that ends up in that tissue and can cause very subtle uh, damage to the neurological cells inside the eye, inside the retina, inside the optic nerve, and inside the brain. So for patients who have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or have already been diagnosed with cognitive decline due to Alzheimer's disease, this technology OCT angiography has reliably shown that there are increases in the areas uh, that are not supplied by these fine blood vessels. So there's blood vessel loss in these areas. So it's something that's very challenging that for early detection, you know, we're certainly not quite at a place where we can reliably diagnose Alzheimer's based on an eye examination, but there certainly are features that we can detect through an eye examination that have been shown to be related to Alzheimer's disease. And in glaucoma, we see something very similar. We do. And, you know, glaucoma is a very complex condition. We've been treating it for many years. And what glaucoma is, is a progressive damage to the optic nerve. So we don't see significant brain damage in optic nerve. We see focal damage at the level of the optic nerve. And what happens is that we treat glaucoma typically first uh, with an eye drop. Then that eye drop's goal is to lower the pressure inside the eye. What we think is that by lowering the pressure inside the eye, that reduces the stress of the op onto the optic nerve, which can slow the progression of disease. Uh, you know, glaucoma certainly has no cure. We're still really understanding why certain patients develop more aggressive forms of glaucoma. Some develop glaucoma at a much later age than others. Some develop a very aggressive form of the condition. And just with our expansion and, and the research that's being done into subtle vascular changes with OCT angiography and the understanding there's also a connection uh, in blood glucose too that may actually uh, show that blood glucose changes and elevated blood glucose can be one of the reasons, underlying reasons, that some patients develop this optic nerve damage in glaucoma. So we're learning a lot. Researchers are really expanding um, our horizons and our understanding of the disease. But for now, our treatment of glaucoma is overall quite simple, and that's uh, with the prescription, typically first line with topical eye drops. As we go even beyond the retina, there's an area called the choroid, and that starts to get thinner in Alzheimer's patients. Can you comment about that? You know, and this is something, again, that we're seeing the choroid, it is a very highly vascularized tissue, and it's impacted not just in neurodegenerative disease, but also systemic disease like diabetes and can be impacted in hypertension. So we know that there is a vascular component that is central to many systemic disease, whether it's one that we think about is primarily a neurological disease or a systemic vascular disease. There's significant overlap when we look at these blood vessels inside the eye. So I think it tells us and is telling us that researchers are on the right track by continuing to look at vasculature inside the eye and how that may allow us to learn more about the underlying disease process and ideally to be able to, to develop an effective treatment for uh, specifically neurodegenerative conditions that, as of now, treatment has been very challenging to develop.
How about Parkinson's disease? So Parkinson's is another neurodegenerative condition that just similar to Alzheimer's disease, we do see patients with Parkinson's disease that have this type of thinning in the what's called the nerve fiber layer. So the thinning of these axons that make up the optic nerve and retina that are connected to the brain, as well as these vascular microvascular changes that are detectable on OCT angiography as well. So again, there's a component of vascular dysfunction and dysregulation that must play a role in the disease process of Parkinson's disease as well. You're an expert on uh, systemic medications and side effects to the eye. If you could go over some of the common medications that cause side effects inside the eye. Well, as we've talked about, the eye has a really high metabolic demand. It requires a lot of oxygen to supply these tissues that allow us to be able to see. So because of this high blood supply, many medications that are absorbed systemically find their way in relatively high concentrations into the eye. So certain medications that we think about that are commonly used, for example, to treat uh, breast cancer, an oral medication, for example, like tamoxifen, can cause changes inside the eye, can cause deposition of uh, a substance inside the eye that can cause a specific type of what appears to be kind of swelling inside the eye, as well as this type of crystalline uh, deposition or retinopathy. You know, other medications that are used to treat uh, elevated lipids can cause changes inside the eye and, and additionally can cause swelling in the macula and can cause symptoms of double vision, eyelid drooping, uh, that when, how we know that these medications impact the eye that way is- about statins, right? Statins specifically. So if a patient were to, at their doctor's recommendation, discontinue a statin temporarily, these symptoms of double vision or eyelid drooping were something that would go away. So many patients are on statins. They're very commonly prescribed. And we don't often think about what other ocular effects or what other types of impact these medications can have. Of course, they're necessary for many patients to be on for the treatment of their elevated lipids, but we also have to think about the side effects that occur due to these medicines. Any, any other ones that come to, come to mind that it's common that, affect, that affects the eye? You know, one medicine that's used for congestive heart failure management or digoxin can cause color vision changes and optic nerve damage to the eye. Uh, ethambutol, which is a tuberculosis medication, while necessary, again, for treatment and management of a patient's systemic condition, uh, can cause very devastating effects to the optic nerve. Now, as we've talked about today, when we hear damage to neurological tissue, that's something that at this point in time is typically permanent. So for someone who develops optic nerve damage related to digoxin use or ethambutol use, it's something that's very important to identify early by an eye doctor so that that doctor can work with the patient's managing physician to try to have them have the best medication or best treatment for their systemic disease, but also one that limits the visually threatening potential side effects of that condition. As you can see, the eye is very, very complicated, and it's very important that you get your eyes examined by a doctor. You know, it makes me sad that these people are online and saying, well, you could just go online and get an eye exam by looking at your cell phone. You could just comment about that. 
You know, I think it's important that we really differentiate and understand what an eye exam is. For many people, they think about an eye exam as an update to their glasses prescription or just a simple check of their vision. And, you know, a check of your vision is something that can be performed without a lot of technical or without the need for technical expertise. Where optometrists play the role is truly as a specialist and experts in ocular health and the ocular system and the way that it functions. So we're not just checking how you see and providing or prescribing a lens to clear your vision. It's a true health examination. So by just limiting the health examination or health evaluation, which certainly cannot be done by a smartphone app, it's something that you're really not allowing yourself and not providing yourself the service of a true medical evaluation. So, you know, don't shortchange yourself as, as an individual or as a patient. You know, eye health is certainly more than just reading 2020 on the chart. And many conditions that we've talked about are detected through a routine comprehensive eye exam with a dilated fundus examination. And many of the conditions that we've talked about today in, a, in their very early stages, which is when treatment is most effective, provide no ocular symptoms whatsoever. So 2020 reading the chart doesn't always mean good ocular health and good systemic health. I want to thank Dr. Jessica Steen. She's an encyclopedia of information, not inflammation, information. <laughs> and if somebody wants to find more out, find more more about you, find out more about your work, how could they how could they do that? You know, you can certainly send me an email. My email is jsteen at nova.edu. I work at Nova Southeastern University College of Optometry in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I would be happy to see you as a patient or, or to discuss uh, with you by email. Thank you, Dr. Steen. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Always good to see you, Carrie. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 